On today's episode of the Quest Podcast, our resident geologist, Ellie Ringo, joins us for another myth-busting episode. Life is a quest for logic and reason. It is a quest to find balance between science and faith. Life is a quest for knowledge and understanding. But most importantly, it's a quest for personal discovery. Whatever your quest, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Welcome to Quest. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Todd Fisher, and welcome to Season 3 of Quest. A quest is a search for something. And this podcast will show you how we know what we know through interviews with people that have incredible stories of dedication and perseverance. To me, curiosity is part of what makes us human. And there's still so much we don't know. There's joy in discovery. It's what drives us. It's our quest. Hi, Ellie. Welcome back to the Quest Podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me back, Todd. I appreciate it. This is your third time on the show. Yes, it is. So you are kind of becoming our resident geologist in a way. I think I'm just going to introduce you as that from this point on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when we do this again, that's, that's what I will be. I am the resident geologist. Well, the last episode we did, which has been about five or six months ago, we were kind of doing a myth-busting episode, right? And I thought it would be fun. I, you know, it was for me, but it turned out it was for the listeners because it's become like my fourth or fifth most listened to episode at this point. People really liked it. Fantastic. That's awesome that people like resonated with it. Yeah. So we're going to do that again today. Um, But before we get into uh, the the myths we're going to bust today, I want to pick up where we left off before. When you were on the show back, I might have been, I think your episode might have aired in November. I know we recorded it before then, but you were about yeah. to uh, have a show come out on the Weather Channel called Frozen Gold, and you couldn't really talk about it when we did the last recording, but it's over now. It's been out there. So yeah. tell the listeners, what was your experience like uh, doing the show? What, what happened there? What were your biggest surprises and takeaways? And, and also, did you find gold? um that's a lot of questions all in one um (laughs) starting off like it was awesome to you know be chosen as the geologist to go over to Greenland and actually help a team look for gold and there was a lot of uh I would say character clashes uh you know like there are in any good tv show and um you know, we did 12 full episodes. We filmed for 12 weeks straight. Uh, we'd have one day off every week. And when we first got up there, like, it wasn't a big deal to me. I was just hoping that we weren't going to all have to leave. But one of the crew members had a false positive test for COVID. So we all had to be locked in our rooms and stay there, which it was just more of a bummer than anything else, because it delayed us. Like we would have been able to look and search and work for an extra week which we weren't able to but it was so fantastic to be over there in a different culture with like there's no trees you know there's there's big boulders there's big huge moraines from the glacier movement that comes in 
there's fascinating minerals that I've never seen in the United States that were just laying on the ground over there in Greenland. Um, like when you'd walk through the streets of the small towns, the rocks that they would bring in for the gravel overlayment were full of garnets. So you'd be walking around and the, there were just garnets all over the street and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. And so I thought that was neat. And if it wasn't garnets, then it was sodalite. So every other rock would glow um, wow. with under UV light. Wow. And I mean, the, the fjords and the, and the beaches were awesome. What I found super strange being over there, there are no real animals. Um, you know, you'd, you'd think like going off into the woods somewhere in the United States, you're going to have all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, that doesn't happen over there. They have a, a version of a crow over there. They have sea eagles, which and those are far and few between. They have something that looks like a grouse, but they're nearly endangered. And then they have like snowshoe hares, and then you might see a fox. Wow. Uh, otherwise, there's like literally nothing. And then caribou are really high in the mountains, and then the polar bears stay over on the actual ice caps. Oh, like the wow. the silence of just everything was crazy like there's no crickets or weird bugs there's an occasional spider which is you just pick it up and like move it around there's nothing like poisonous the flies and the mosquitoes suck like these little teeny tiny gnats like I can't tell you how much protein that I ended up snorting up my nose from not wearing my mosquito net (laughs) just walking around walking I guess stick to your lip gloss it sticks to your eyelashes I mean if you weren't wearing a mosquito net like for the first two months, it was terrible. But as soon as September hit, it was beautiful. All the gnats and the flies and um, any mosquito had already like died off at that point. And seeing the northern lights, like for me, for the first time, was just breathtaking. I could, they were every color of the rainbow. And my friends kept saying, hey, they're getting really big solar flares. I heard about it on like, you know, uh, the weather channel, which was, you know, coincidence since we were filming for the weather channel. Right. And they're like, so you should see the Northern lights and how oh, it was, it was the coolest thing. It, it was breathtaking. And so for in the search to look for gold, like the, I think you have the mentality of like, yeah, you, you want to find the gold. It's cool. Or there's like these hardcore, I'm out for the gold. I'm going to find this. And like people get nuts over it. And I, I use that term very liberally because they were freaking crazy like they they would go like insane and but eventually uh the claim owner listened to me and we started digging in the section that i had said listen i've been testing this since i got here dig here we're gonna find gold here and they eventually did so we did come away finding gold um but in the end of everything uh we made sure that the claim owner got to keep what we found because it wasn't very much because no one wanted to listen to the geologist. Everybody's like, oh, we're gold prospectors. We know what we're doing. We're smarter than you. We've been, you know, doing this every weekend for I don't know how long. I was like, so I do this every day. This is my job. But what do I know? So you, you hinted to a, me, you hinted to me that the gold was found in a spot you wouldn't expect the gold to be found. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So um I am actually, I'm in the process of writing, or actually, no, I I finished the article, but the article won't be published for a a little bit, but it'll be in the GPAA magazine. But the gold that I ended up finding 
was in the lateral moraine and the alluvial fan. And there are many, many reasons that I go into as to why, but you wouldn't think at all that gold would be in that area because yeah, this is placer mining, but most people went into it thinking, oh, we've got to like open up crevices and we've got to flip over rocks and we've got to find the bedrock. And it's like, we're not in California. Like we're in a completely no- different country. And like the processes that extracted the gold from these really tall mountains around us has nothing to do with the same extrapolation as you would get for the gold in California and Nevada. So it was crazy how fine the gold was because the glacier for, you know, eons has been crushing the rock into microscopic powder and the rocks that it didn't crush, you know, just pushed them into the fjord, but the gold was so small. All it did when it would escape from the glacier or wherever it was, it would just float away. And I know that that term for gold, people are going to go, Oh, that doesn't happen, but it is true. If there's, you know, enough surface tension and the surface tension isn't broken, the gold will just float right on top of the water and wow. just, you know, go with wherever the stream is and then eventually when the surface tension is broken it'll fall but there i have um many a video where i can show people that gold floats very easily and it's all just all about you know the bubbles that are caught under so it is it it was crazy insane that the alluvial fan and the lateral moraine is where the gold was and it was um we were finding uh like when we ended up like weighing out what everybody wanted to go to this big old hole we're like oh we're gonna dig really deep and i'm just shaking my head going this isn't gonna work um they found a little bit but then we went over into the actual area where i was like dig right here let's do this um the amount of gold we found there was four times the amount of gold that they had found in their hole wow and i mean that's saying something when you're talking about really fine gold but it was an amazing experience um the series is, uh, it's actually still playing uh, reruns on the Weather Channel. I have no idea how long that'll go on. Um, but I have also put it on my YouTube channel so that people can see the episodes on YouTube. Right. Um, so, and, and those are just popping up, you know, randomly every Monday until I have all 12 episodes up. But I just got those. So I'm putting them up there and a lot of the people that didn't have the weather channel or couldn't stream it, they're like, yes, finally we get to see it. Thank you. We appreciate it. So that part was cool. So answer me this. So did you find any evidence of global warming there? I, we may have touched on this a little bit in the last episode, but I want to bring it back up again, just for people that might not have heard it. Oh, yeah. Like climate change is insane. Um, and, and people that say that it doesn't happen, I mean, that they, they, they have a whole nother world that they're going to have to deal with when they realize what's going on. But um, there was a specific helicopter trip that I took with one of the, um, with the mine, the ruby mine up there. And we flew over this giant ice sheet. And so he was pointing out just 30 years ago where the ice level was at. And so uh, in Greenland, the lichen and the moss grows over stuff relatively quick and i use that term lightly with quotation marks because everything grows pretty slowly there just because you know daylight hours non-daylight hours that it's kind of crazy and and just how cold it gets and how harsh the weather is but nevertheless the line where the ice sheet had dropped down you know 30 years prior was about 300 feet um from you know top to bottom 
and that's just in height. You know, that doesn't include the width or anything, but just on this one area, you could see a 300 foot change over 30 years. And, wow. you know, they go out and they mark it. And they're like, when I used to fly over this, the ice was way up here. And even the helicopter pilot said, yeah, it, it changes so much. And that's one of their better ways they can see how much it changes. And, you know, the other one is how far back those big ice sheets have receded. Like they're not getting those huge icebergs anymore like they used to, you know, during the summer when the ice would start to melt a little bit. Also, right. one of the most interesting things while I was there, and, and we may have touched on this particular part, but Greenland received rain for the very first time in history at its highest point. Uh, they've never received rain there in their recorded history, but wow. a hurricane came through over the summer and they didn't even have any way to calculate the rain because the only thing they have up there is snow and ice. Wow. So they had to take things outside to try to capture the rain just to see if they could make an assumption of how much rain they got. Wow. And that doesn't scream climate change. I mean, I don't know what does. But climate change is cyclical, you know, however many thousands of years you want to call it when the climate changes, sure, but it is something that's happening now. And even you can see it in, when I go scuba diving, all the, the amount of fresh water that is getting into the oceans, um, you can see the coral change, you can see the die off, you can see the bleaching, there's a lot of stuff that is happening, you can see with your own eyes, and Greenland was a definite, definite uh, show of that. And even the, uh, our, the claim owner that was there said that while we were there was probably one of the warmest summers that he's ever seen. And I mean, granted, our highest temperature for, for while we were there, I think, got up to 52. So that uh, like 52 degrees. So it's freezing cold still to me, but that was the warmest, one of the warmest summers that they've seen. So wow. the, all of that's just crazy. Well, you mentioned that the climate change is cyclical, but this might be the first time that this has been a man-made climate change. <laughs> we might be oh, bringing yes, this one on ourselves. There is, oh, we there, totally are. There is a rumor that, you know, maybe the dinosaurs had populated so much that methane from just their droppings was creating climate change and might have contributed to a die-off of dinosaurs but we really have no way to prove that but no. i mean i imagine overpopulation could also bring climate change if there were enough humans on the planet i'm sure it would do that but we're we're doing it simply from all our man-made stuff i'm pretty sure oh yeah and you know and and everybody is guilty of that you know the the, the thing that i do i guess that and it's not something that's great, but I love to just use my insulated water bottle. Like I try to not buy things that are just plastic water bottles. I mean, if, if anybody's ever seen plastic planet, I mean, that made me cry. And just to see like what happens is crazy insane. But the fact that people are now taking like plastic water bottles and other parts of plastic that can't be recycled and they're turning them into bricks to make houses for. I mean, I saw that on YouTube. I went, yes, this is awesome. Why didn't I think of this? Like, you know, however many years ago when they thought of it, but it's a brilliant idea. And hopefully that will catch on and more people will start making those facilities to try to help with just our waste because we are a huge population and we waste so much every single day. Yeah. And, you know, just, just use 
usable water bottle. That's, that's a really good way to like start. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. See, I don't believe in a utopian society because I don't believe no. that you can make progress without problems, right? So yeah. a utopian society would eventually put us back in the dark ages in a way because we would yeah. never just move forward because everything would be perfect, right? So the issue yeah. with science is that when science solves a problem, they open up another problem that happens in the future. That's the issue with science. <laughs> yeah. So 50 years ago, the solution to all our problems was going from glass to plastic. That was the miracle thing, right? In the mid-century, yeah. it yeah. was like, let's make everything out of plastic. And now last week, there's the first study out that they're finding microplastics in our blood. So will science wind yeah. up killing us in the long run? <laughs> so it's that's yeah, what it no, always is. Scary. Yeah, they, um, I don't know, it was a friend of mine talking about this, but about the microplastics, about how somebody was having surgery or something, and there were like little particles either in someone's intestine or, or stomach, I don't, I don't remember which organ it was, but that there were microplastics in there. I'm like, this is disgusting. Yeah. Like that, that's just bad. Yeah. So science's solution to a problem created another problem. And eventually it will create a problem so big that we won't be able to be saved from it. And that's, you know, me, I'm always, I have a love-hate relationship with science. In one way, I like to use science to support the things I do with spirituality and religion. But then I also am very much against science and how it, it, does, uh, it does hurt our world in many ways. And, uh, yeah. and this is one of those ways, but it, it occurred to me that, you know, the utopian society can't really exist because it can't, you know, <laughs> can't really have any more problems and then you don't progress. And, and, uh, and, and that's what science has always done, open up new headaches for us. And that will continue to happen with every new advancement, yeah. every new solution to something great, like even our mobile phones and all of this, you always hear all these horror stories about what's you know, what's 5G going to do to you? Is it going to get everyone brain to everyone's freaking out about 5G going online? But, you know, <laughs> the the issue is when you deal with batteries and you deal with frequencies and you deal, you know, you're going to affect things. What are you going to affect? Who knows? Yep. Are we affecting the bees? Are we putting brain tumors in our head? But everyone has a mobile phone and they can't live without it. <laughs> yep. And the system exactly. is, is made to where you almost have to rely on it. You almost have to have it now. And that's the thing is that science has dictated you have to have something. And I'm, I'm, I'm bleeding science and technology together at once. But, you know, um, they made a must-have product for you that may wind up ruining your life in some way. So crazy. Yeah. I mean, Anyways. who knows what they'll find 50 hmm. years from now, uh, you know, from the cell phones that we've all been using. They're like, well, that was a bad idea. Yeah, that was a bad idea. Exactly. Yeah. Let's go back to the wired up phones again. <laughs> I'd love that. Um, anyways, that's been my Todd talk for the day. <laughs> Rant over. But uh, but let's circle over to busting a myth today and talk about this. I think yeah. it's a really exciting topic. <clears throat> I want to get into erosion today. Uh, there's a I think everybody knows this, this narrative exists in almost every culture and every country of the world is the, the narrative of a great flood. Certainly it's a huge biblical event, right? Rain mm -hmm. for 40 days and 40 nights, change the shape of the landscape. You know, a lot of things happen from this, but is this really plausible? Could it, could it rain for 40 days, 40 nights? And if it did, 
what would it do to the planet? How would it reshape things? So I wanted to kind of get into a, a discussion about erosion. So Ellie, mm-hmm. for those who don't know, could you just define erosion uh, for everyone and what causes, what types of erosion there are? Yeah, so like the simple, simplest version of erosion is just meteoric water hitting the ground and displacing the earth from one section to the next. There's no defined quantity or amount, but erosion can be in the microscopic version all the way to massive landslides. And it generally all has to do with water or some movement of the earth or a combination of both at the same time. But air, air can cause erosion too, but it's not as effective as water, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, the next form of things I was going to do is an arid climate and wind uh, mixed together. Uh, you know, wind beating against a rock, stirring up sand, uh, creating an abrasion effect, also erodes. You know, mountains, rocks. That's how we get a lot of um, spher- spheroidal weathering of granite. And, you know, it's where the granite rocks and the desert look very round. And that is a form of erosion. The wind is hitting it with sand, creating that round rock. And with a lot of other things, I mean, you know, you can, <laughs> a bad windstorm, you know, in Phoenix, a haboob can take the paint off a car. So, wow. you know, is a, a, a many different things, but those are, those are the simplest terms of, you know, what it's doing. If Let's talk about like a, a garden hose. Say you have soil that is fairly fresh inside of either a pot or, you know, a, um, like a box, a planting box. And, and you let the garden hose run, you forget about it. You come back and go, oh my gosh, all my dirt is moved or, or it's, you know, run out or something. The simplest thing can, can erode it. If that dirt is more compact and harder and it's been there for a couple of years, that garden ha- hose has to have more water, has to work longer, has to have more pressure before that dirt just starts eroding away. But it's very, very simple for it to happen. When I was a boy, I would get out my, you know, Star Wars action figures and I would create terrible climate events <laughs> on these figures. And they <laughs> would have rainstorms, mudslides, boulders would fall on them. Like I would create like the worst types of catastrophic weather events for my action figures and make them deal with it, you know? <laughs> so, so I've been fascinated by this, even as a little boy, like just watching what I, what I could trench out with a garden hose, you know, and how things would displace because on the earth, I don't think people realize that like, we always have the same dirt. It just gets displaced. It's like water. Water doesn't really leave the planet. It's always still here one way or another. And even if someone's in a terrible drought, the water is still on the planet somewhere. Yeah, it's just not where you are. (laughs) Exactly. Let me ask you this before we move on a little bit. So someone told me that uh, tornadoes and volcanoes and even maybe earthquakes are causes of erosion. Is Is that true or is that just... Uh, like much larger versions of what you're already talking about with air and water. Yeah, that would just be, yeah, much larger versions of that. I can't, I wouldn't say that a volcano would be considered a form of erosion. However, it it is displacing earth, whether it be molten magma or as the the lava would flow down a side of a hill, you know, degrading that hill to the point of it collapsing could be a form of erosion but you know definitely you know anything that has to do with 
earth and air and water moving around that essentially would be as long as it's displaced would be a form of erosion. And you mentioned uh, like one of your examples was really air and water on soil. It You can also erode the rock, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I was talking about rock too, like big granite boulders. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I'm curious. So, you know, we use the garden hose as an example of how you can move soil. It's a project. You can mm -hmm. test this right in your backyard. There was a, a yep. thing that existed for a long time, uh, kind of post- old west united states and and even to some cases maybe even still going on today but it's hydraulic mining you want to explain a little bit to oh, everyone yeah. what hydraulic mining is yeah hydraulic mining is a, a form of plaster mining where they would use giant hoses with pressurized water and they would point these hoses at any given area that they wanted the soil to erode very quickly they wanted to blast it out and as that soil or dirt whatever you want to call it ran down the hill they would put into giant sluices and you know capture gold out from underneath of it and they were doing this in giant alluvial fans or mountainsides where the the soil was loose you know an unconsolidated kind of um alluvial fans usually aren't hard packed this isn't like a giant hard rock mining this is all plaster mining it's very easy to move it but the amount of dirt that they were moving and displacing was essentially whole mountains were being moved not that that dirt was no longer there it was just in another place and they ran it through their sluices and you know got it out of there uh got out or excuse me got the gold out of it and then they left those other piles of dirt just where they lay they didn't put them back and they have um also hydraulic dredging and giant massive dredging where basically they will take this huge dredge and put it in a river and basically it spans the whole river they, they don't use these anymore but and this dredge would basically go all the way across the riverbed in these sweeping motions and suck up the dirt displace the dirt on the other side of the bank opposite to wherever it was and then try to sift out the gold that created huge washes, huge giant riverbeds that no longer flow because it was so displaced and moved, the meanders weren't there anymore and the water decided to go somewhere else. So wow. a lot of people got very angry at that when, when that happened. And a couple of places in Arizona where that happened, Morristown is one of them, a lot of hydraulic dredging out there. And then uh, in Lynx Creek in Arizona, a lot of people still go up there to look for gold in the stuff that the machines didn't capture. I'm one of those people. And every time you go up there, I'll still find gold in the stuff they left behind, but it displaced it so much. They left huge mounds where you're like, that's not real. Like yeah. looking at it, you're like, that is someone put that there. And that's one of the biggest things with the hydraulic mining. You can see that it's no longer natural. They moved so much material in such a short amount of time too, that, that caused further erosion problems. And I get, we can start to talk about that maybe a little later though. I have a couple of statistics about hydraulic mining that I wanna bring up, which oh, I thought awesome. were interesting. Um, so first off, it was developed during the Roman empire. <laughs> Romans actually developed the technique. We didn't really get it into Long America time. until uh, the 1850s during the gold rush, where people just wanted yep. to just move as much as they could to get to the gold. People just rabid to get to the gold, right? 
but I, mm -hmm. but I have a couple of things here. So an eight inch monitor could throw 185,000 cubic feet of water in an hour with a velocity of 150 feet per second. In fact, if you hit someone with it, it was like a cannonball hitting them, you would kill them. So this is how yeah. powerful these streams were. And this is one, right? So one nozzle, one nozzle alone was capable, one nozzle was capable of moving 6,240 cubic yards in a 24 hour period. <laughs> oh my gosh. So you can see how over, you know, a 30 year span for the gold rush, how literally millions and millions of cubic yards of soil were moved and displaced. So crazy yeah. amount of stuff you could move. So, um, you know, again, kind of working up from the garden hose to uh, what hydraulic mining would be like, you can see how quickly you can move soil and rock just using water, right? Mm -hmm. Incredible. Crazy, huh? Yeah. And I, and I, I, I was studying, uh, looking at um, hydraulic mining, and I found so many places where they showed just you know, like the damage caused by it, um, where, the, where the soil was moved to, all these new unnatural occurrences, things that were at the, the, the bases of, of where rivers would run. Like there was so much stuff I couldn't possibly even talk about it, how much people hated the idea of hydraulic mining and politically how kind of supercharged the, the, the government was at this time because they want to find gold, but they also, you know, they're kind of raping the land in a way, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Crazy, crazy. So taking kind of this idea of how much of this soil could be moved with just one nozzle, what are we looking at if this could happen in a much larger way? Like what happens to the results of tsunamis or the results of say maybe a great flood? What would that do? Could you, just for sake of example, I know this wasn't really, is it probably the best example, but let's say the Grand Canyon. Could the Grand Canyon yeah. be carved by a massive weather event that involved water? I, I don't see how it couldn't. Um, you know, the, the Grand Canyon has been carved by the Colorado River over centuries and centuries of time. Sure. Yeah. Over slow erosion, right? Slow movement of all of the dirt because once you erode something you have to continue to push that material out of the way otherwise you create a dam right right so for for a giant flood to come through and do that that you've got to have massive amounts of kind of rock eating rock is so to speak you have to have some kind of an abrasive uh even though you know water is you know a great solvent it's its own abrasive but Having extra abrasives, that's one thing that wears down sandstone or, or wears down a rock. So over a certain length of time, yeah, you would need a lot of movement. You know, if water was just to sit there, it would have the same effect on everything. So you'd have to have a channel, you know, eroding something away. Like if, take it monsoon um, here in Arizona, for instance, we, you end up, it, it's completely dry day all of a sudden there's some clouds it starts to rain down the canyon and all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh there is a wall of water and rocks rushing towards me and so if you have that constant movement of the water and the rocks and everything else then it, it can be moved out of the way anything can happen anything can be eroded by massive amounts of water with rocks 
and time. So you, yeah. you have to have, you know, these like three components in order to make that happen. So could a flood of 40 days create the Grand Canyon? That's, I could see it displacing a ton of earth and creating brand new channels and, and everything like that. I don't know from a scientific point of view if just in 40 days if the Grand Canyon could be eroded just from the flood. Yeah. Over, you know, if it was fully filled up with water and like, you know, a giant ocean with a huge current flowing through it, yeah, I could see that over, you know, 100 years time. Sure. But, but it, it's just for the scientific portion of me thinking about that, that's very difficult. I mean, I, I was raised reading the Bible. I was raised on those stories, you know, that this is what happened because of all of these factors. And so it rained and the whole earth was covered in water. And the only thing is, is in those stories, it doesn't really tell you what happened, you know, other than eventually the water went away. God created a rainbow and said, I'm never going to do this again. And <laughs> this is my sign that there's never going to be a flood. Right. And right. And then so with all of those factors, I just, it's so difficult for me to pinpoint that, yeah, you bet that could happen, but right there are features, uh, like geologic features that have been studied where tsunamis have moved and displaced so much earth and so many rocks that, you know, they can create their own brand new mountains and, and carve stuff out in an instant. And, and so with that basis saying, well, if, if that's how the flood came about and with that much like terror and that much pressure and, and intensity in the water movement, then I would agree that yes, the Grand Canyon could be moved with a sense like that. But from just rainfall alone and it's sitting there, I'm not, I'm not exactly convinced. Right. And the Grand Canyon is not a great example because it wouldn't really have been affected by that great flood because it's too far in into the country. In my, uh, in my first Metatomics book, I go into great detail about some of the science behind the Great Flood and whether uh, it could occur. And with the help of NASA, we found a lot of really interesting evidence to support it. First off, we did a mathematical calculation of how much water there is on the entire planet in uh, not only oh, cool. liquid form, but in vapor form and in ice form. So we have a, we have a formula for how much there really is here. And then we mm -hmm. discovered um, an area of the atmosphere that would have held a vapor barrier. And the vapor oh. barrier is what we believe broke free to create the, the rain event. So now this uh, water, this layer of the vapor barrier, which was too high for evaporation, by the way, and too far into the atmosphere to collect anything from space, a very anomalous part of the atmosphere. <laughs> 180,000 feet above sea level, which is gone. So you can definitely see that there was probably something in that level of the atmosphere that doesn't exist there anymore. And um, yeah. and when that came down, it's it's plausible that it could have rained for 40 days and 40 nights. So whatever broke this free, maybe it was a catastrophic event, a meteor or a mm -hmm. comet hitting the earth, or it could be the wrath of God. Whatever broke it free, mm -hmm. it could have now turned all of that into liquid form and put it on the planet and caused a lot of geographic changes as a result. So that's what I think yeah. is really interesting. I've never really involved the geology side of this theory though. And that's why I wanted to talk about this today was certainly if that mm -hmm. were to happen, 
you could start to think about, well, how is it possible continents drift apart? Is it possible that's when Atlantis sinks? It's a lot of other things start to plug in at this point. Mm-hmm. How the world would change as a result of all of this extra water that it didn't have before now on the planet's surface. And of course, one of those things would be, you know, would you be carving out new shorelines? Would California have looked uniquely different pre flood <laughs> you know <laughs> like you wonder what all yeah. of the, just the shapes of everything would be like at that point and then what would it create mm-hmm. i was mentioning this before we started recording today that josh gates did one of his shows up in the pacific northwest and he was trying to show how maybe one particular geographic region region in i think it was in oregon might have been uh carved by the great flood so we had geologists mm-hmm. and different people in discussing whether it could have been like a like a super fast event that created these beautiful um, geographical features. And at the end of the show, mm-hmm. like most of Josh's shows, there's never really a conclusion, and there's enough evidence to go either way on it. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but I'm always fascinated by this, and and just the knowledge to know that with enough water, with enough pressure, speed, uh, other rocks and bits of things that it's picking up along the way, could it carve something very rapidly? And I think that's really kind of the the nuts of our conversation today in a way. Oh, yeah. And that's totally possible when you're even thinking about rivers or, you know, like the, the best version I have is like monsoon. I've, I have seen the monsoon wipe out roads in a heartbeat. And you, you know, just a regular dirt road, something that I would take normally up in the wilderness or whatever and you're like well that's gone and it was from a little bitty amount of rain so imagine yes a ton of rain with a lot of abrasives and some power behind it you're going to wipe out a lot of stuff very quickly but that dirt's going to move somewhere else and you would be able to show how much was displaced by finding that other pile of displaced dirt right right yeah it's incredible. It's really amazing to see what the power of Mother Nature can can do. Oh, yeah. I think we're only starting to see some of this in this new generation, too, because the climate change is going to make everything worse. Hurricanes should get stronger. Flooding events will probably get mm-hmm. worse. We may see sea level rise. We're going to start to see a lot of these things coming soon. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Coming soon to a town near you. Um, <laughs> the Well, they've already seen, like, sea levels rising just from the amount of ice that's melting from the ice sheet and that you know the the water is here sure when it's in an ice form it's uh not smaller but it's more compact it's not moving around it's you know that kind of thing and it's it's on a land base all of these ice sheets are on land when the ice gets into the water there's even more displacement of the water and it starts to melt and yeah yeah you're going to get your shorelines that rise you're going to get rivers that rise things are going to start to move and and melt off and as all of those melt offs happen you're going to get more erosion you're it's going to make rivers wider it's going to wash out shorelines it's going to do a lot of those things that we haven't really seen right. and you know a lot of this uh even you know speaking with like agriculture or you know land usage and and stuff like that if you don't have the proper emplacements such as trees grass infrastructure that kind of thing to hold in the soil and the dirt and whatever you you create an even bigger problem when the rain does come when it does push things away because then you have 
basically turbid water, which is considered a contaminant. And as it flows down, it picks up more contaminants, uh, you know, whether it be organics or plastic water bottles or soil from one area to the next, or even seeds that from plants that shouldn't go to another area as it flows down. All of these things are contributing factors to climate change and the giant erosion factor. And it, you know, we were talking earlier about rock tumblers. You were, and, and that's awesome that, you know, you, you got one and, and stuff like that and tried it out. But if you put in your grit into just your regular rocks and, you know, they're pretty big at the time, you can't really see what they look like. They're cloudy because they're broken. And you stick them in there with just a little bit of water, maybe a cup of water or so, and you let those run for a couple of weeks. When you get those rocks back out, oh, they've probably shrunk down, you know, by a quarter of their size. But once the end of the process is done, say a month down the road when you're finished, most of the rocks are half the size, if not smaller. And the same thing goes in nature. You look at the tumbled rocks on the beach and that kind of thing. All of that happening in the process of the waves, hitting those rocks against the sand, pulling them back out with the tides and it happening all over again it's eroding little tiny particles of those rocks away very slowly. So, you know, erosion is all around us at every point in time. And big, um, uh, the Jurassic coastline is a awesome example of how cool erosion can be because without it, they wouldn't have found the ammonites that are there. And that's one of the only places in the world where you can find solid pyrite ammonites, which is awesome. But it's because it, it wore away that shaly layer that's there on the Jurassic coast and was able to erode those bigger rocks down to smaller rocks to eventually those ammonites popped out. And, you know, they're sought after all over the world because of that. And it, all of this also has a lot to do how consolidated things are. Be it an alluvial fan, that's going to wear away really quickly. You're going to, uh, the geomorphology of those areas are going to be cut very quickly by water. Whereas if you're talking about like granite boulders, those take a very, very long time to wear away. Um, sandstone is a lot easier uh, because once the water starts dripping on sandstone, as all of the sand starts to loosen, you're creating sandpaper in the water. So you instantly have turbid water, which is going to really, really abrasively erode the sandstone. So it's going to go a lot quicker. Same goes with limestone. And limestone is awesome to wash the erosion process. And that can happen in very, very quickly because the calcite within the limestone is what is allowing all of that to break down very quickly because it can be water soluble. And all of those factors together create amazing features on limestone. You get very beautiful stuff. And that's one of the reasons why it's pretty easy for people to carve. But limestone is what most of our caves are made from, right? Are caves uh, mostly yeah, yeah. limestone? Yeah, all, all of our cave systems, those are eroded away by some form of usually an underground spring. And then a big hole is left there. And the meteoric water flows through the ground. As it flows through the ground, you, it's collecting minerals in the ground, usually the calcium that's there, and redeposits them in the cave. And so all of that is forms of erosion as well. Wow. When you were talking about water, water levels rising, New York is just now starting to put in their floodgates. 
LaGuardia has a major airport expansion. And what's really fascinating about their airport expansion is how high it is off the ground. <laughs> so all <laughs> the new terminal is, is really high up. You're really high up. Like they built the building up on pillars because they know that the water's coming. And what's really weird is, you know, Manhattan Island isn't really that long. You know, you're only looking at about seven miles top to bottom. And, yeah. uh, and so they're starting. And of course, the, the part that's going to flood first is, is um, the financial district, you know, the, the, where the World Trade Centers were, that's going to be, that's the lowest place. Okay. And uh, they're not really, they're not really building any floodgates there, any flood walls there yet. They're building them in different parts. And what they're running into is how many of the people, a lot of rich people in Manhattan that don't want these enormous walls built blocking their views. <laughs> well, and I, I guess parts of Manhattan can get used to, uh, having little boats like they do in Venice, because I mean, eventually you're, you're going to have a lot of water in flux and there's not much you can do about it unless you put up huge infrastructure to help with that. Yeah. Central Park's going to be the central lake. <laughs> that's what that's yes. going to be. <laughs> but yeah, they, and the thing is, is to save that Island, you have to build all the way around it. And it's just really yeah. odd that in, and then there's all of these economic considerations. There's some politicians saying, well, I think a six foot wall will be sufficient. That'll get us through, you know, the rest of our century and this generation. Let someone else worry about a larger wall, you know? <laughs> Jeez. So there's all kinds of political and, and financial concerns that they have with what type of wall to build. <clears throat> and uh, when we really, what they probably need is a 10 foot thick, 30 foot high wall, seawall to yeah, really exactly. keep, it, keep it back. <laughs> So oh. in my, in my hometown in the Louisville area, they had one massive flood in, in 1947 that, you know, took the Ohio river and raised it so high it flooded Louisville and Southern Indiana. So they built these, um, you know, these, not only these earthen, uh, like the earthen dams, but they built, you know, concrete flood walls and they've never been used since 1947. And people are like, well, maybe we should just tear these down. This is probably never going to happen again. Like they're just an eyesore at this point, seeing all these concrete flood barriers. But, uh, you know, we might be glad they're up at some point. <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. And I mean, water is serious. And, and even with people that when you have like hurricanes and tsunamis and stuff, people that have had their homes ruined because of floods understand that there's no stopping it. Oh, no. you, you know, because once it finds a little tiny crack, it's going to make that crack bigger because it's eroding everything around it. And uh, eventually it'll get past, you know, your sandbags, your stuff like that, everything. And it, it can be extremely devastating. But people that are too high and mighty with their noses in the air that don't want some form of water retention, that's going to come back to bite them in the butt real, real hard. Right, right. Well, Ellie, these are always great conversations. I love having you on the show, and uh, I do hope you come back again. You're my, for you're my, sure. but you're my second to last episode for this season. I'm taking a break during the summer and then coming back in the fall. But when we come back, I definitely want you to come back on because I'll have more myths I want you to bust. And uh, oh, I love that. See if this is true because so many people say, "Oh no, you could never have you know a big catastrophe. Uh, you couldn't create a Grand Canyon, you know, in 40 days." But but I think we're starting to show that, you know, it's possible enough water, enough force, enough other attributes in the water, and you could carve something big out and, 
And that's why I love talking yeah. about this stuff is, uh, is to kind of uh, put that there, there it's possible. It's plausible, oh, for sure. people, we should say. <laughs> people need to understand that and it's completely plausible. Yeah, there has to be certain things all working together uh, to make that happen, of course. But if all of those things happen, then yes, those things are completely plausible. And if if people want to turn up their noses to it, I mean, you can't, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And stupid is always going to say stupid. So you can't, you can't fix that. You can only yeah. help try to educate them. And if they don't want to listen, oh, well. Um, let me ask you this. So I think this is an interesting thing. I'm very curious about it. Um, yeah. So uh, there have been parts of the country that have detected their highest wind speeds ever recorded. So it appears that maybe possibly wind is speeding up on parts of the planet, which I didn't know was really possible that the jet stream could, could change speeds or how that would even work. Would, could we have erosion in the same way if, if air speeds increased, would we see more, would we see much more terrible events? Like, is there a peak that wind will, can get to, or what do you know about that? What can you, can you speak to that about? Yeah, you bet. So like the, the haboobs, if I'm saying that right, that they have in Phoenix and in, you know, parts of Arizona that are in those just flat arid areas, I kind of got to witness a small one in, in Kingman a couple of days ago. You're, you saw all of a sudden this gigantic wall of sand and you're like, oh my gosh. And it was two, 300 feet tall. And you're sitting there and you're watching this and you're like, oh, I hope it doesn't get close to me because not only does it start to wipe out trees uh, and, and grasses and stuff like that, that we need to stay in the soil so that we have less erosion, but that much force with air and sand all mixed together, beating against a rock or big canyons, that, that's going to weather them out right there. You're going to have massive erosion. And the more you have of that, you could have catastrophic events. And so with with the Gulf Stream even changing um, because of the temperatures, you know, cooler water mixing in with warmer water before it should be, you know, all of these things are changing. Of course, it affects the jet stream as well because you're not getting, you know, cooler winds when you need them or warmer winds when you need them from different parts of our Earth because things are heating up. We are having climate change. And also right now, with the shift of the poles, with the amount of degrees that we have shifted over just the past two years alone, I mean, uh, your, you know, magnetic north, your declination is off a lot by now. I don't have the exact degrees on me. I would have to have to relook that up. But it's been changing so much. And we've had a magnetic swap. It, throughout history that they've you know drilled core samples and they can they monitor they've have monitored this from drilling in the mariana trench it, you have magnetic swaps of our poles if that was to happen and theoretically you would have massive catastrophic events people think that the weather's bad now you wouldn't even know what was happening and we would probably honestly fall under under another massive ice age just from the poles swapping wow. but because we don't have the same declination that we had a couple years ago, you're seeing huge climate changes. You know, places that 
where it should be raining, you know, during the summer uh, or, or during the winter, those things have swapped. And just throughout Arizona and Nevada, as I can attest to these just from living here, five years ago, uh, monsoon was like clockwork, middle of June to, you know, the end of July every other couple days you could predict monsoon was going to happen you were going to have massive rains not a big deal it goes away i haven't seen a true monsoon in the past two years wow we're getting rain sorry go ahead you've gotten snow there though yeah so and that's very unusual We've, we've gotten snow during december and january we've gotten rain throughout the winter and fall and spring months that's not a thing in Arizona that is not a a typical climate for this area and so watching that happen in real time has actually been pretty scary and you it's been completely unpredictable so all of these things happening with all of these changes yes you can expect it with wind speeding up I just looked up the I just looked up the fastest wind speed ever recorded and it's 254 <laughs> miles per hour. <laughs> oh, is that somewhere over the ocean or in a hurricane? So it was um, a hurricane gust on April 10th, 1996. It was a tropical cyclone, Olivia, which passed by Barrow Island, Australia, which was basically the equivalent wow. of a Category 4 hurricane. That's the highest wow. wind speed ever recorded, 254 miles per hour. Yeah, that's insane. I and can't so even... And you start getting winds that are, like, pretty bad, it it'll get it'll get worse before it gets better but people just need to be educated and be aware that it'll happen i mean those things they take out buildings and it will erode the earth around them very rapidly if it continues yeah yeah unbelievable well ellie it's always a pleasure tell everyone how they can find (laughs) you out there on the interwebs and the social media world yeah awesome um you can find me at Ellie Ringo or at Ellie Knows Rocks. And I'm on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and all over the place. And I have a blast telling people about geology or random things or, you know, myth busting with you. So this is awesome. Yeah, for sure. And she's got a lot of great content out there. Definitely check out her TikToks. Uh, episodes of um, the Weather Channel show are on our YouTube now. So go check those out. And, uh, and Ellie, we'll, uh, we'll talk again in a couple of months. Okay. Awesome. Sounds good. You have an awesome day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you have it, my interview with Ellie Ringo. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments, you can always email me at questwithtodd at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail at anchor.fm forward slash metatomics. I'll see you next time on Quest. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please be sure to rate and review this episode. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyright. Any previously trademarked or copyright content is used by permission. Information and opinions stated in this podcast should not be construed as medical advice. Please be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metatomics at metatomics.org 
or find us on social media for other unique content.